Frimley Health NHS Foundation Trust covers patients from Berkshire, Hampshire, Surrey and South Buckinghamshire. Over its three main hospitals, Frimley Park in Frimley, Heatherwood in Ascot and Wexham Park near Slough, it handles nearly 900,000 outpatient appointments and treats over 240,000 people in their emergency departments each year. But it's not just the clinical staff, doctors, nurses, surgeons and consultants who work in these hospitals. There are plenty of support staff who often work behind the scenes to keep the hospital running. In this series, we'll be talking to some of those people about what they do and how they came to work inside the hospital. In this episode, we look at support staff working with the clinical teams to help with ongoing learning, support and training for the staff of the Trust. These staff members help facilitate learning using different techniques to engage and educate. In our first stop, we're heading to Frimley Park Hospital to meet Ernest to talk about his new role. Hi, my name is Ernest Santos. I am the Clinical Education Senior Administrator here at Frimley Health NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, I've been working in this current role for one week, so very new, um, but it's it's very exciting. What's made you make this jump to this new role? Um, so my previous role was, let's say, I I didn't have the interactions with the clinical staff and clinical um, leads. Uh, one of my main motivations was. Um, working with those clinical staff again and having a closer impact to uh, teaching our, our staff and then that impacting in good quality patient care. So can you explain a bit about what the role is? So as a senior administrator for clinical education, my role entails I, I'll be helping out our clinical leads in enhancing their services to our uh, to our staff. So that could be learning services, that could be improving their well-being, it could be improving services uh, such as software that they use, um, learning interactives, all that kind of stuff. And then we hope that the work that I do can translate into uh, an enhanced level of um, education, which then equals to better quality care for our patients. A bit like trying to think of examples of other people's roles. It's sort of the, the, the keeping your knowledge up to date. It's that sort of maintaining an awareness of what's going on, what's new practice, and keeping your, your skills. That's, that, that's correct, yes. So it's, it's ensuring that our, our staff here at Frimley Health, um, we can give them that high level of training, education, to ensure that they are up to speed with what's new, uh, competency-wise, training-wise, uh, and overall just to make sure that we are up to date with everything like you've just mentioned. Um, and that all translates into better patient care. We provide fantastic patient care already, but we know uh, if we keep striving for better education, better training, we know that we'll be ahead of the curve, uh, meaning we'll be just outstanding in patient care. Could you describe to us what a typical day for you might be? Um, a typical day? Ooh, uh, a typical day would be, uh, first off, 
uh, answering some emails, uh, any inquiries regarding where I am at certain projects. Um, one of the projects that I'm leading in right now is uh, digitizing our competency database um, so that's tracking um, staff members training and so on and so forth and it's making it digitized so the, the learner and the staff member they're able to access uh, their own competencies uh, and it just makes the um, their experience knowing where they are within their learning uh, pathway as per se a lot easier and that means we're also uh, able to keep track and where they are and where we can improve their training uh, give them um, more training opportunities um, so that's one part of the day another is um, creating um content for the clinical education team so that might be uh, training content or training videos uh, that might be uh, campaigns that we put out in social media um, it's a wide range um, but like I said uh, as recording this interview I've been a week in <laughs> so um, it's still fairly new I'm still kind of getting a grips with uh, what is expected uh, what they want me to do and what I can do but you know, they've been really supportive. They've given me the time, even though it's only been a week. Um, so it's really good. There's a lot of um, exciting things coming out. So, yeah. So can you describe to us the journey? How have you got to this role today? What's your background originally? How did you end up at Frimley Health? So my background, it, it's... It doesn't follow the conventional style of working in a, in a hospital. So I started, oh gosh, seven years ago as a bank care assistant. Uh, and this was just, you know, um, a, a job that I would do after um, college just to earn a little bit of money. But I noticed every time I finished a shift as a bank care assistant, I felt that sense of gratitude. And, you know, I felt the the cliche thing of I made a difference. And, and, and I really, you know, being a any member of staff within the hospital, you do make a difference in, in people's lives. Um, and after a few shifts working here at Frimley Health as a bank care assistant, it, I knew I, I wanted to work in, in Frimley Health, especially for the NHS, basically. Um, so I did that for a few years, went away for university, um, doing food science. So nothing related to nothing related to healthcare or the NHS. Um, then after three years in, in university, there was an opportunity for at clinical education as their um, administer, uh, admi admin assistant um, and worked my way up. Uh, learned the trade, learned how to do their systems, learned how to um, to coordinate the training programs and so on and so forth, learned how the hospital worked, um, and now we're here. Um, I also did um, just under a year in talent acquisition, so that was their branding and attraction. That so that was creating campaigns in promoting jobs and getting people to work for the for the NHS, especially for Frimley Health. Um, but like I said early in the interview, I really missed working with those clinical leads um, and I missed uh, having an impact in our staff's learning. And, and, and that was one of my main motivations to come back uh, to clinical education, um, to, to have an impact in their learning, which equals into better patient care. Where 
in the hospital are you based? What is your team size? Can you sort of describe where you might be found and who you might be found with? So I am mainly based at Friendly Park Hospital. Um, but wherever there is a need, I am there. So I, you can find me at our uh, other site in Wexham Park Hospital. You might find me in another site in Ascot, which is Heather Heatherwood uh, Hospital. Um, the team were, were massive. The clinical education team uh, were were just were, were just growing. Um, we have several leads, several clinical um, educators who are constantly out in the wards helping our staff, helping our wards ensure that um, we are supporting our staff in, in their learning needs, in their clinical needs. Um, we also have a fantastic admin team. Um, and recording this, it was just admin day the other day. Um, without our admin staff, I mean, I am admin for clinical education. Um, the the whole the whole team wouldn't function. So we have a fantastic group of admin who coordinate all of our training programs, training days, um, make sure everyone turns up <laughs> to their um, um, training sessions. Um, and like I said, we are, we're not just based in Frimley Park. We have so we have one team at Frimley Park Hospital as well as a team in uh, Wexham Park Hospital. So clinical education were cross site, and whatever we have here in Frimley Park times two in in Wexham Park Hospital, and we're also um, scattered around within our community sites. So clinical education we're everywhere, and I think that's the amazing thing because we we want to be there. And be visible within our within our within our clinical staff, and say to them, "We're here when you need your support for training and education." Can you describe to us how a need might be met from the clinical staff? For for example, would uh, they say, "Oh, well, I need some training on this particular area"? Is that something you can research for me, or does it more come from you guys saying, "Look, here's here's an update on the latest." Um, drug usage for this particular treatment, um, we've provided you this information pack. How, how does that sort of update the training work? So regarding training and education, uh, clinical education, we we, we do uh, several um, programs. And one of the main ones that when in my previous role within clinical education is the preceptorship. So the preceptorship program is for our newly qualified nurses and it's 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 a program that essentially makes sure our clinical uh, our new qualified nurses are are supported for their first year or so within within family health so it will encompass a wide range of uh, clinical training um that they will need in their clinical area so that will give them that foundation uh and like you said if there is a if someone comes up and says to us, oh, I really need training in X, can you help me? So we do have um, other team members within within the team who will say, oh, yes, we have this specific course that might help you within your further learning. 
why didn't you sign up for it? Or why don't I uh, get in touch with the person who's leading it? So most of the um, questions that we get, we already have courses for um, because we do a lot of courses. Um, we do uh, in-house modules. Um, we help with further learning. So anything that um, a staff member might have a question in regarding further learning. So they've done already their, their degree and they want to do more. Um, our team in clinical education, are, we're, we're more than happy to help out with any inquiries. You mentioned courses there. Are those courses that you've put together as the clinical education team here and do you deliver them on site? Are they virtual or recordings? To answer your first question, yes, uh, those courses are uh, done in-house. We have fantastic uh, facilitators, our clinical uh, educators who are knowledgeable in every single factor of of nursing and, and more and they will deliver fantastic training sessions for our staff to ensure that they are up to date, well informed and competent at the necessary skills that they ask for. Um, we we also, the, the great thing about clinical education, we do it all in-house. Um, so that means we, we know what's going on, we can control uh, and and modify our training sessions to, to meet the needs for Frimley Health. Um, and I think in, in my personal opinion, that's fantastic uh, because we don't just teach generalised teaching. We we alter it and modify it to ensure that it suits the needs for Frimley Health and for our patients and the people that we serve. Doctors, nurses, they're busy. It's difficult to find time to do stuff. Therefore, planning fixed face-to-face training is a commitment to do so. By having the ability to go digital, having videos, content available on demand, do you think that's a bit of benefit to clinical staff because they can find moments where, oh, I've, I've got a moment here, I could just you know, duck, jump into this and have a look at this, watch this? I think it is a benefit already right now having a hybrid approach in, in consuming learning education content. Uh, I, think, I, think you're, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, some staff members just do not have the time to to you know attend a, a face-to-face training, additional face-to-face training, um, and you know if they want to get more uh, learning out of there, it's difficult for them to have that safe allocated time, and and that's just the the nature of where we work. It's we we have a we have a, a lot of our clinical staff. They have a lot of workload that they need to do and they have our patients to care for but having a digitized platform where they like you said that they can access on demand that there and that can help them go into a path that they want to to go into i think will be in my opinion extremely vital in the future we are doing that already we have our um learning uh, online learning portal OLP. So um, Paul and and his team they've been doing a fantastic job in in developing uh, that that application, the online learning pro- portal. Um, I'll be I'm sure I'll be working alongside with with Paul and his team quite a lot, just because online learning portal uh, videos and learning they all they all marry up, and I feel like if we have that. That fund that base of good level uh, digitized learning, as well as pairing it up with our face to face sessions. Um, I think that will be a future. 
Looking back at both your past roles and the role you've just started, what for you is a memorable moment in working in clinical education? A memorable moment working for clinical education is definitely when I was their simulation technician, where we would provide um, a fantastic simulated training sessions that involves a mannequin. And this mannequin can breathe, can talk, can blink, and it just gives that added realism, but in a safe learning environment for our nurses and for doctors. Um, that has to be one of the standouts moments where you, um, when our staff members, nurses, doctors, care assistants go into our simulated environment and they do a scenario and they learn so many things during uh, the simulated uh, scenario and after, that's probably a highlight because the feedback that I got when I was doing that role, um, it brought that kind of fuzzy feeling where I made that massive impact to them. And they would say, wow, that training session really helped me out in X, Y, and Z. And knowing that I helped them out a little bit in their pathway and their education and further learning, that's a, a big standout um, memorable moment for me. As Ernest mentioned, there's a whole team dedicated to running simulations of real patient interaction and detailed scenarios to help educate and inform clinical staff. We're heading off to the Postgraduate Education Centre, the PGEC, at the back of Frimley Park Hospital to meet Paul, who works with that team. We're sat in his office, which faces out into the main breakout area, where the students and full-time staff come to learn and update their skills. Hi, my name is Paul Wilder. I'm a learning simulation and digital services technologist, mostly based at Frimley Park Hospital, but technically cross-site. The role, what does it mean? It basically means that I get involved with anything to do with technology-enhanced learning, which is a bit of a buzzword, TEL, um, tell. Um, but effectively, anything that is technology-related that helps the education of any of our staff, uh, and that can be anybody from a um, healthcare worker through to a consultant. Um, and pharmacists, ODPs, um, and even admin staff. So how did you wind up in the role? Is it something you've always wanted to do, or did you kind of fall into it? Um, well, the, the, I guess half my job at the moment actually is mostly to do with running the simulation suite, especially on the Frimley Park side. Um, and that, ironically, I fell into because my first day here in the Trust, they, they opened the sim suite and said, you're not doing induction, Paul. You, the, we've got this new sim suite that's just opened in the education centre. Uh, and that's kind of technology enhanced learning. So that'll be, that'll be you then. Um, so, so I think I had to get involved with simulation. It's consumed half my half my uh, half my job. But yeah, I was a um, I was an IT teacher uh, before that, and I was actually running um, several schools and their um, IT systems in Staffordshire. Um, and um, then I went from there to work in the NHS down in Bristol and then Bath uh, before moving here. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I kind of like I, I kind of started doing digital services. Um, and the postgraduate education centre services, uh, and then simulation came on, and then technology enhanced learning, of course, as the years go by, has increased more and more. Especially if you look at the pandemic, of course, where I think they kind of say that um, the NHS jumped about a decade in two years. Wow! Um, so you mentioned the sim suite mm. for our listeners. What is the sim suite? Uh, yeah, I get I get uh, really worried that some people don't actually realise that um, behind our kitchen in the um, 
in the education centre at Frimley, we, we've got a simulation suite. Um, and uh, the, we have a brand new simulation suite at Wexham, which is great. Um, so a simulation suite is effectively somewhere that uh, we use as an environment. It's kind of a safe space, so the staff can come off wherever they are, the wards or wherever, uh, and they can have their education in that simulation suite. And we can replicate anything from um, uh, an emergency through to common patient care. Uh, so generally speaking, the simulation suite is kind of set up to look a bit like your average ward bed. Uh, uh, and I have a kind of whole family of mannequins. Um, I don't like people calling them dummies because they're very expensive. So they're, they're high fidelity mannequins, we tend to call them. Uh, and a lot of part task trainers as well um, for um, perhaps in particular clinical skills. So does the mannequin, um, does that reproduce the sort of physical element of whatever they're looking at in that particular simulation? Well, it's really interesting. So, so obviously, we don't have, you know, it's not science fiction. We don't have um, robots that look exactly like humans and can do everything a human can. But what we're trying to achieve is high fidelity. We're trying to make it as realistic as possible. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, if we've got a scenario that calls for a distressed uh, patient with, say, dementia, um, who's going to, uh, I don't know, poke the nurse, wave their hands a lot, maybe get up out of the bed. We can't use our mannequins for that. It doesn't, we can't simulate that. You know, we'd have to use a, what's called a standardised patient, a real person, an actor, uh, effectively. Um, but for most of our scenarios, uh, like a deteriorating patient scenario, um, we can use our mannequins um, to represent those. Uh, and then we try, try and make the the whole environment as, as realistic as possible so they'll have a uh, as realistic a brief as possible, um, and they'll go in there and try and manage the situation. So are they talking to the patients in these scenarios? So the, so obviously if it's a real person, like an actor, then obviously they can talk as themselves, uh, although we might put a covert in their ear just so that we can give them tips of what to say. Um, but if it's a mannequin, yes, what we have, we have a control room, um, uh, which is behind a one-way mirror, so we can see what's going on in the scenario room, the simulation part of it. Um, and we've got a headset in there and someone can play the voice of the mannequin and it kind of comes out uh, a fraction tinny out of the top of the mannequin, but it, it's good enough. And, and obviously, you know, the candidates, we do say to them things like, you know, you, you have to, you know, it's, they have to buy in to the simulation, to the real, because everything isn't super realistic in there. So they've got to buy into the fact that this big hunk of plastic is in fact a real patient. And we say things like, you know, everything you do, you should still consent your patient like you would do if it was real. Um, and you should talk to your patient like it's like it's a real patient, uh, you know. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes, for example, it's quite funny if, um, if they suddenly take an ABG. An ABG is an arterial blood gas test. It involves sticking a needle into an artery in your arm. Uh, the doctors will take an ABG of the, of the candidate and I'll scream because they didn't consent me and it's painful, you know. So that's what would happen if they did that to a real patient. Um, but I think, generally speaking, once they're in there for 30 seconds or so, they buy into it and it becomes realistic. Um, and we, we kind of say that um, simulation is kind of high stress, low risk. So it's high stress because we are putting the candidates under stress. You know, they're dealing with a deteriorating patient. They've got to think what to do. They've got to do teamwork. They've got to do cooperation. They've got to do situational awareness. Um, but at the same time, it's low risk because what's the harm? If they, get, if they get it all horribly wrong, you know, if their patient, you know, deteriorates even further or even, God forbid, dies, it doesn't matter. It's just a mannequin. It's all about learning in a safe environment so they don't do that for the real patients. So when you're simulating the voice or the responses mm -hmm. as the patient... 
how do you know how to play that patient? Is that come through experience of learning the scenarios that you're playing? So what we do is we, uh, most of our scenarios, we have kind of a 10 page, uh, a 10 page document that outlines everything we need to know about that scenario. So there's a tech page that I need to know as a simulation technician so I can set every, all, the, all the obs up correct because we've got a fake patient monitor. Um, and then there's a flow chart that says, well, this is how the scenario should work as time goes by. A set of notes for the facilitator saying, well, this is, this is how we think it should be run. Um, but we also have a page for the patient. So whoever's playing the patient has this page and it says, this is what has happened to you. This is how you should role play. Um, this is your background. So in theory, if they ask me a question, I should be able to answer it if I'm playing the patient. Um, so because obviously what should be happening is the, is the candidate should be asking me, you, you know, things like, you know, well, why are you here? You know, how are you feeling? Those kind of questions. So I should know what the answers are. So yes, it's, it's all basically written down. And hopefully if the scenario is properly written, we should know roughly how it's, go how it's going to go unless it all goes what we call Pete Tong, unless it all goes completely wrong. For example, um, the candidates fail to do something and they come to the wrong differential diagnosis, for example, at which point then it relies on the experience of your facilitators as to how you deal with that situation. Um, we kind of say that um, having the patient die isn't a really good educational experience for our candidates, as you can imagine. So it's all about what we kind of call get out of jail free cards. So if it's all going horribly wrong, maybe maybe if it's, say, student nurses that are in there and they're just not coping and they just don't know how to deal with it, maybe what happens is uh, a senior nurse just pops into the room or just phones up saying, well, how are you doing? Um, do you need any help? You know, hopefully, though, if they're following their kind of ABCDE, ABCDE stands for Airway, Breathing, Circulation, Disability and Exposure and is a checklist used to make assessments of patients. You know, they should escalate if they, if they don't know what to do. And there's, we have a fake phone in the room so they can actually phone up whoever they want um, and they'll just get us in the control room pretending to be the uh, operator. What is a typical day in your role? In, so, well, that really, a typical day. So, so basically, people are always saying to me, "So, so, um, what are you doing next week, Paul?" And I go, "Well, I have no idea." The the problem is, from a simulation perspective, anybody across the entire trust um, could book the sim suite to do simulation. So, every single day is different. The only day that I am relatively assured is Tuesday mornings when the medical students have their sim. Other than that, it could be physios, it could be foundation doctors. In a minute, I'm going to go and do a simulation with uh, ED doctors, I think they are, that's in there having a resus day. But it could be anything. And of course, if I haven't got a simulation on, um, then I've got loads of other things in my job role to cover as well. So I, I run the, um, the OLP, which is the online learning portal. That is the portal that all staff members use to do their Statman training, all of their e-learning and hopefully directs you to any educational resources that you need. So that's our, our, our online learning platform. I also run CATQR, which is our online attendance tracker. So all formal education sessions that the Trust runs should either be recorded in OLM or CATQR. So that's uh, CATQR is excitingly, exciting, relatively new to the, to the hospital, but it means our candidates, when they go into a class, instead of writing their name down on a register, they just scan a QR code and it's registered on their app. I guess, what's the best bit for you about the role? What's your, you know, the, the thing that you enjoy most? I like, a, I like most of them. I mean, I don't, I, I, like a lot of people, I suppose, I'm not amazingly keen on the admin and paperwork, but I like a lot of my job um, because I, I feel I'm an important part in the cog. My, my job effectively, as I see it, is I support educators in the trust 
The educator's job is to support our frontline staff in the trust. The frontline staff's job is to provide care for our patients. So I am kind of like three steps back, but I'm a vital cog in 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 doing that. And I think I think what I really like is there's, there's this phrase called horizon scanning, which basically means looking at the horizon from a technology perspective, what is coming up on the horizon. And part of my job role, which I really like, is to look at that technology and go, you know, is this affordable? Is this effective? Can we use it in the trust to make what we do better? And that's what it's all about. It's it's making it's making the job better from a technology perspective. I'm not interested in really expensive, fancy gadgets. When I worked in school, it was a different matter. Interesting, fancy gadgets are really good for teaching kids because it makes because it gets kids excited. But not in a hospital. You know, I, I, you know, I want to spend NHS money on providing effective technology solutions that make the job of our educators easier to allow them to to make patients have better care by their staff. At this point, we leave Paul's office and head over to one of the simulation suites where a simulation will be taking place today and we get to listen in. OK, so so this is a typical simulation suite layout, um, which consists of three rooms. So you have the, the viewing room, which is also the briefing and debriefing room. Uh, you have a control room, which has a one-way mirror, and then you have the scenario room. So you've got a one-way mirror, so it looks like a mirror from this side, from the candidate's perspective. We have a mannequin in kind of a vaguely generic bed layout, as if it was on a ward. Um, and, then, and then in my hand, I've got some paperwork for what we're going to do, and we're going to do four scenarios this afternoon in this particular case, which is for a resuscitation study day for ED. So the first scenario is an 82-year-old who's tripped on the pavement, and she's got a large laceration to the left side of her head, and she's still bleeding when she comes into A&E. So, so effectively, my job as a sim tech now is to uh, set up the room to make it realistic for ED for, those, for that first scenario, uh, and then make sure that my virtual patient monitor will show the correct OBS uh, when it comes to it. So the SATs, the blood pressure, uh, the heart rate, all of those kind of things. So uh, one of those um, scenarios you mentioned, obviously, there is a, a large cut to their head. Mm. How do you simulate the large cut to the head? Good question. So um, we've got two basic ways. Well, there's, there's several ways of doing it. The really cheat method is just not to do it at all. And when they expose and check the patient, we just say over the loudspeaker, yeah, you can see a large cut to the head. So obviously, that's really quick. It's not very realistic. And of course, we're trying to make it realistic. Um, the second way we could do it is we could just use a photograph. So we could get an appropriate photograph. We could just put it there. And then when they expose the head, they'll see the photograph. Um, the third way is, which is probably what we are going to do, is I have a whole set of pre-made uh, modelled latex injuries, basically. Um, and I will take one of those. I will stick it to the side of the head with a bit of latex glue. Um, and then they'll see it effectively and then if they are a bit confused by what they're seeing which they might be we just tell them over the speaker if we need to uh, clarify anything and then the fourth method which is the most realistic but the longest to do is to do what we call moulage which is uh, moulage i think is french for mock injuries but effectively we've got a big makeup kit we can take that makeup kit um, and we can actually use the makeup to actually completely make a uh, injury on the side of the head are there particular um, sort of simulations where you would choose to do that more realistic over potentially, you know, the resuscitation one here? Maybe that's not as relevant for it to be realistic. What sort of scenarios would there be that you think you use that more realistic technique visually? I think, well, like, 
like everything in simulation, what it actually comes down to is why are you running this scenario? What is your educational objective? Um, and that kind of leads everything to do with the simulation in terms of um, a lot of the clinical skills they have to do, not just the injury. I, I remember um, uh, quite a few years ago, we did a, um, we did a burns victim. Um, uh, so she comes into ED and we used a, um, she was French actually, we used a French uh, medical student uh, and we had a, uh, a makeup artist come in and literally spend probably about an hour doing burns all from her fingers, fused her fingers together, all up her arm, all across her chest. And she'd already been, she'd already consented to basically to have her, she had a, she had a sports bra on, so she was consented that they could open up her, open up her clothing to do that. And she wore clothing that she didn't mind getting cut. Took over an hour, I think, probably about an hour and a half that what this person was working on them. Um, and, but what I actually remember from that scenario is two things. Firstly, that when they drew the curtain back and we had a paramedic, so we had someone role play the paramedic to say, this is your patient, this is, and do a handover, because uh, obviously, again, we're trying to make it as realistic as possible. Um, the, um, what, what, what happened was she just screamed her head off. As soon as scenario started, she was screaming so much, we couldn't hear a thing, which was very realistic, but a bit hard for our facilitators from an educational perspective, but ultra realistic. And one of the things that came out of the debrief actually was interesting was that um, some of the candidates said, that was unbelievably realistic. The only thing that we found different in reality from that is the smell of burnt flesh. And actually, I've looked into trying to replicate the smell of burnt flesh since then um, without much success, um, unfortunately. Um, but yes, it's it's all about basically the how much work you put into it and in which part of the simulation from a SimTech perspective is based on your educational outcomes. It's time to set up for the first simulation. Paul talks us through what this particular scenario needs. Right, so an 82-year-old, so I need to make her look like she is 82. So, and she's just come into ED, so we're going to put on her a grey wig. So get a headscarf out of my box of props. I have a whole dressing-up box, I think some people tend to call it. Right, let's put some glasses on her. So some nice old lady glasses. So we need to... Make sure they've got everything. So they're going to use head blocks at some point during this scenario. So I need to pull out the head blocks and have them lying around ready. So we're going to put them over here. So now I just need I need to sort out this blood. So we're going to have to go and see if I've got a fake laceration that we can do. Because the problem is, if I put lots of fake blood all over the place, I then have to clean that up really quickly while they're debriefing before the next scenario. Right. So we're now in the control room. First thing I'm going to do then while I'm doing this is I'm going to switch everything on. So I'm going to switch on my control device and the audio visual kit that means that they can see what is going on next door. But I'm not obviously going to show them what's going on next door just yet. Um, I can't say my, my old woman looks very, uh, <laughs> looks very beautiful, but she's obviously an old woman, I like to think. And I'm going to take so the mask on with kind of a, uh, an injury to her, her left forehead. And I've got this bottle of what's called sticky blood. And I'm just going to put a little bit and not too much because I do not want to get this on my grey wig because then I'll have to clean it. So I'm just going to put a bit on to make it show that the injury is actually a, a, recent, a recent cut and not one that's very old. So I, in the old days, I didn't used to use bras on, on, on mannequins because obviously they don't need them. But 
uh, it's a bra is a really useful indicator to remind doctors and nurses when they expose a patient that it is a female patient. And if it's a real person, they'd never leave it, leave the, the woman exposed. But when it's a mannequin, they kind of forget a bit. So I put a bra on to make it obvious to them. So now they've got a bra on. I don't actually like tie it on properly. It's just kind of there loose. So like a lot of things, it's just there to kind of as a prop to represent things. You know, so, so for example, um, when they cannulate a patient, um, because cannulation as a clinical skill isn't actually one of the educational objectives of this scenario, um, for cannulation, they just take a cannula and they just tape it onto the arm. They, you know, they, so they have to do a motion of doing it, but they're not actually doing the full pulling it out you know, um, and, and doing everything you'd normally do with a cannula because we're not worried about that clinical skill. What we're worried about is that they're actually, um, they're actually doing whatever they need to do as part of the whole scenario. With the mannequin ready for the simulation, we head into the control room to prepare the technology behind it that makes it all realistic and gives all the correct readings that the clinical staff are expecting. OK, so this is the software that controls the mannequin and the virtual patient monitor. OK, so I go back to my scenario paperwork. It shows me that the respiratory rate is going to be 21. So I'm going to set the initial respiratory rate to 21. Sats are 93 on air. So that's going to be a problem. Hopefully they're going to put the SATS probe on and then I'd like to think the doctors or the team are going to, um, are going to put um, a non-rebreather on the patient. Blood pressure of 95 over 85. And then as the scenario progresses, the patient might deteriorate or might get better depending on what they do to the patient. And that the facilitators in here will tell me what to do at that point. So they will direct me. So in this particular scenario, the educational objective, so remember this is a 82-year-old who's, who's um, hit the side of her head, basically. What they want to be talking about here and what they want to see in this scenario and what they're going to do in the debrief afterwards is they're going to talk about C-spine collars in head injuries, management of head injuries, activation of massive hemorrhage, flying squad blood and IO insertion. We head back into the simulation room for one final check. And Sophie, the ED sim fellow, is going to come in here now and just check through that we've, I've done everything that needs to be done for this scenario. So she's just checking through because she knows how the scenario is going to run. Let's just shut the door so the candidates can't hear us. Just head blocks. So head blocks are there. I haven't got any paperwork because they're not going to do anything on paperwork, are they? What, what about an ambulance, do ambulance handover sheet? Are they, are they getting a pre-brief or not? I'll, I'll just Okay, fine. No, I think that's it. Good to go for the first scenario then? Mm -hmm. Excellent. We head back through to the control room, ready to prepare for the first scenario to get underway. So what's really important from my perspective is that I know who is covering certain job roles. So obviously I'm the sim tech for this, so I'm running the technical side of it, but I need to know who is doing the debriefing and is in charge because they're the one that's going to give me information. Um, who's playing the patient's voice? Who's going to answer the fake phone? Um, is there anyone next door? Is there anyone in the scenario room who is actually embedded faculty? So they're kind of what we call a sim nurse rather than a real nurse. You see what I mean? So I think we're going to have at least several facilitators in here, um, one of which will presumably be answering the phone. One's going to be uh, maybe doing the patient's voice if I'm not doing it. Um, and then um, I need to know who, who I'm taking orders from. So our candidates are just sit, standing in the room waiting to go and they know it starts when Sophie walks in as the paramedic and pretends to arrive with the patient. Uh, and hopefully you'll hear what's going on then. And at that exact moment that she walks in and starts the scenario, I will then kick play. 
Are you running this scenario then, Miles? Yeah. Are we starting it as soon as Sophie goes in? Right, yeah. okay, so she's in. At this point, Sophie, one of the facilitators, is talking through the candidates the scenario that they're about to go through. After their initial briefing, we listen in as they start to talk to the patient. Hello. Hi, Doris. I'm Will. I'm one of the nurses. Hello, Doris. What's happened? So he's taken the temperature. We've got temperature. Anyone know what the temperature yeah. is? 36.4. The temperature is 36.4. And I've just said that on the big speaker so they can hear it in the room and they can hear it next door. And now they're assessing the patient. Normally I wouldn't talk this much, obviously, in, in a scenario, because it's probably going to distract the facilitators. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> so she's got a big injury on the left side of her head and she's got a bruise on her left leg. My be head's bleeding quite a lot, isn't it? Uh, is, that, is that still bleeding quite a bit? Yeah, still bleeding, is it? Yeah. Yes, it is still bleeding quite a bit. Okay, so we should place some pads on you, okay? You'll need to attach those properly on the studs, the big studs. And just bear in mind that is a real defibrillator. I get very twitchy when they use the defibrillator because it is real. <laughs> so they, you can see so by the top of the rhythm. Just pull the, the crash bell. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, I'll go ahead. Okay. Crash bells are pulled. Okay, so one of the facilitators has gone in to play a senior. And hopefully I'll give him an S-bar handover. And bear in mind, of course, as this scenario unfolds, everything is being um, streamed from the, from the several cameras to next door so they can all hear next door what's going on and see what's going on. Let's stop here, guys. Thank you very much. Okay, and if you want to make your way next door for your debrief. So as soon as they end the scenario, I cut the projector and pause the mannequin. And now they're going to go, ne go next door and have their debrief. And they're going to discuss what happened. So, while I set up the next scenario and clean everything up from this scenario. It was amazing seeing Paul working and preparing for each scenario. That day he performed four different scenarios for a selection of clinical staff within the A&E department. He and his team are an important part of the ongoing support for clinical staff to ensure skills are updated and refreshed. That brings us to the end of this episode, which has only covered a small section of the staff working within the hospital to deliver educational services for staff. Join me next time when we'll be speaking to more staff and volunteers as they work inside the hospital. <laughs>